0: We have been in the midst of a sermon series on John's Apocalypse. Next week, if the Lord wills, we will go on to finish chapter 5. I will also at that time give you some sermons for the purposes of review on our extended sermon series on the service of song. We have been in the midst of something of a digression. We have been considering the angels of heaven, a subject much neglected in contemporary reformed circles. We finished this study last week. Uh, But then it seemed to me that we might be able to do just a bit more. We had for the most part focused upon uh, the holy angels of heaven and only occasionally casting a sidelong glance at the demons of hell. But we do have a culture that is ever growing in interest in things that uh, Christianity has for a long time considered to be demonic, and so some special address to this subject seemed warranted. It seems that uh, spiritism has always been something that has fascinated fallen man, and in our day and age, in spite of enlightenment rationalism, it seems to be as popular as ever, maybe even more so fortune tellers and horoscopes, Ouija boards and mediums. These are things that are now before the public eye once again. Think about the rising popularity of Halloween as is made evident in its new retail power. As a matter of fact, I understand that um Christmas is going to be a thing hard to beat in its retail power because of the uh, buying of many gifts that have nothing really to do with Christmas per se, just gifts for all sorts of things and varieties. But with respect to things specifically Christmas, uh, Halloween and things that are specifically Halloween are soon to surpass things specifically Christmas. Christmas. And what a strange holiday this is. The celebration of demons and devils. The celebration of murder, bloodshed, death and mayhem. A celebration of things nightmarish and terror. All the negative effects of the fall. In the Christian religion, those negative effects of the fall described in our catechism as sin and its consequent miseries are things to be lamented and not things to be celebrated. And it is strange that such a large percentage of what calls itself Christianity would participate in such a thing. But you take my point, I hope that there is a rising popularity and interest in these things. Is there a rising popularity in witchcraft? For so long a time, it has been taboo. And so it's hard to gauge the interest of the former age. But in our present age, the taboo has fallen away and it has become, uh, it has come quite clearly before the public face. And we can say this for sure, that um, popular and sympathetic treatments are uh, multiplying through the entertainment media. You might think of the... um, the popularity of the Harry Potter novels is just one particular interest. If I, if, I, um, if I might make something of just a brief digression. Some years ago, my own family was wrestling with a, a problem, a attention, an inconsistency. And it was basically framed up in this way. In our Christian circles... Harry Potter is universally frowned upon. But Tolkien's Gandalf almost universally smiled upon. Why? Does Gandalf suddenly become a good and virtuous figure because he was written by a Christian and Harry Potter is uh, considered by us to be an immoral character simply because he was written by an immoral An unchristian person? This difficulty was resolved for us when we were studying through the book of Leviticus in family worship. And you have a similar statement in the book of Exodus. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. You see, whether it be Harry Potter or whether it be Gandalf... Witchcraft is fundamentally immoral. And to accept either Harry Potter or Gandalf as being a good guy calls for what's called a suspension of ethical judgment. In other words, you have to set ethical judgment aside in order to receive either of these as being a good guy a protagonist in your story. It is the moral equivalent of making, say, for example, a serial killer, the protagonist and good guy in your literature. In order to do that, you're going to have to set aside or suspend ethical judgment. Should a Christian thus suspend ethical judgment? The scriptures say that we are to have our senses exercised to distinguish between good and evil. This is not a good habit of mind. We are supposed to be um, exercising our minds and our judgments to make them sharper so we can make even clearer distinctions between good and evil. To make it a habit of mind to set aside ethical judgment is to go in precisely the wrong direction. All of this is immoral. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. But I digress. Rising interest also in ghosts and hauntings. Not too long ago, I started to become aware that there are A number of shows, uh, you know, that these reality shows have become more and more popular in recent years. And a great many of these are, I don't know what to call them, ghost hunter uh, shows of one kind or another. There's rumors of the hunting of a particular place. And so these ghost hunters will go. There's a great number of them. I did an Internet search and there are a surprising number of them which shows two things, I think. First of all, it indicates a general interest in the population. There have to be enough viewers to support all of these different shows. And also, a second thing occurred to me. It seems that such shows could be sustained unless they were finding something, at least from time to time. At the end of every episode ended with, and we went and we didn't find anything, the show wouldn't make it very long. They have to be finding something. Let me read, read to you a quote from Thomas Manton. In his, uh, this comes from his sermon series through Second Thessalonians concerning the Antichrist. But here he comments upon the demonic power that would be operative in the false miracles of the Antichrist. And he says this. Before Christ's kingdom was set up, the devil did often visibly appear. But since, he playeth less in sight. When God openly manifested his presence by appearing to the fathers in sundry ways and manners, as he did before, he spake to us by his sign. So did Satan. Visions, apparitions, and oracles were more frequent, and where Christ's spiritual kingdom prevaileth, the world heareth less of these things, but where it is obstructed, more. This is a very difficult statement to evaluate, but you catch his general principle. As the gospel has success in a place and among people, there are less reports of these things, demon possession, uh, hauntings, and so forth. But as the gospel is obstructed and hindered and meets with less success, there are more reports of these things. I say this is difficult to to assess because a lot of these reports uh, come to us from the experience of Christians, particularly on the frontiers of Christianity in missionary regions, but just consider our own nation. If Manton is right, and I suspect that he is, the increase, uh, the increasing reports of such things speak ill of our spiritual condition and the success of the gospel in this place. As we have had uh, occasion to observe frequently recently, even as our culture has an increasing interest in such things, uh, the Reformed churches seem to have an ever-declining interest in things that have to do with the devil and what the scriptures teach about things demonic. There is a lot of interest among at least some kinds of evangelicals, almost universal interest among charismatics. And here you could add demon possession to the items of interest. But it seems to me, and you will have to judge for yourself, that to the Reformed, these considerations do not seem sober minded. And so... Since we like to think of ourselves as sober-minded, we retreat from the contemplation and the consideration of such subjects. Little flock, we do not have this luxury. Two considerations. First of all, the Bible does teach us that there is indeed a satanic kingdom, that ever stands in opposition to us and the work of the church, and we are not to be ignorant of the devil's devices. And second of all, we have not thus learned Christianity from our fathers. Although Reformed theology in recent days has neglected these things, it was not so with our Reformed forebears. And you don't have to go very far in the writings of the reformers to find at times protracted discussions of the devil, demons, the opposition of the satanic kingdom, and the devices that he uses in order to hinder the work of the church of the living God. So I do hope that... Our considerations this morning will be both biblical and sober. Indeed, sober because biblical. I have one doctrine this morning, and that is simply that Satan does indeed have a kingdom. And here I want to uh, simply remind you of what we've already covered, because I'm not going to cover it again. A demon is a fallen angel. And he has all of the same uh, properties and characteristics of that angelic nature. A spiritual being with great intelligence and great strength. We have also had occasion to consider a little bit of their history, both at the beginning and at the end. We considered the fall of the angels as well as their judgment at the end of the world. But now I want to consider the intervening time. What uh, has this satanic kingdom been doing from their first fall even to the present hour and will continue to do until such a time as they are judged? First of all, we can say that the satanic kingdom, very much like the angels, has an organization. We're not told very much about that organization, simply that there is one. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, Satan, they're called Beelzebub, is called the Prince of Devils, which uh, indicates uh, some level of hierarchy, organization, and variety of standing. There is a prince among them. And there are other such references. Turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's little epistle to the Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it it's not easy perhaps not even possible to say very much about their organization but even these words principalities and powers suggests organization among them There is a like reference in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 where they are called principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this world. So similar language, again indicating variety and organization. As I said, as it is with the angels, so it is with the demons. The specifics of the organization are hidden from us. But they are organized, and they are organized to achieve a very specific purpose. And indeed, some level of coordination and organization among them is important for the achieving of this purpose. It is their great desire to actualize their malice against God and men. That will manifest itself in a wide variety of ways, but that's the purpose to actualize or act according to their malice toward God and toward men. This malice was already evident in the Garden of Eden in the uh, attack that Satan makes upon God and upon his word, as well as the attack that he makes there upon men. Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. God ratifies the enmity in a gracious way, indicating that by His special grace He would call some man out of this rebellion to Himself to stand on His side of the dividing line. But you see there the enmity, uh, the malice between these two. You might say uh, there's a hostility. The devil's goal is to hurt, to harm, to vex, to torment out of this malicious spirit. a text you all know very well. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 18. He is portrayed here as being a lion, not uh, resting in its den, but on the prowl looking for prey, seeking whom he may devour. And um, if you remember our recent teaching on Antichrist, the false prophets whom the devil enemies have similar goals and designs. Jesus says, "...the thief cometh not." but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. This is a description of the false prophet. His desire is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he has this spirit from his father, the devil, who animates him to this work. I'm always curious about such things. We can never think too clear a thought. I flipped open Webster's dictionary and looked up malice, because this was Richard Gilpin's word for what the devil was trying to do. And uh, the first definition that Mr. Webster gave was malice is active ill will. There's an ill will in the heart that is pressing itself into activity. But simply, the devil, if he can, will tempt you to sin and drag your soul to hell. If he can do that ultimate harm against you, he will. But if he cannot do that, if you have been plucked as a brand out of the Fire, by the grace of the living God, he will all of your days do what he can to harm, harass, disturb, hinder, and vex you because of the malice of his heart, even when he knows ultimately it is in a losing cause. This is the goal of the Satanic kingdom. When we consider the weapons of his warfare, there are a great variety in the scripture. But I think that we can focus on some that scripture presents as principal weapons in order to actualize his malice. First of all, the devil uses deception. If you remember that very first description of uh, Satan in somewhat veiled terms, but he is described as more subtle than all of the animals that the Lord God had made. Indeed, uh, many interpreters think the reason that he took this serpent as um, uh, as his instrument in that regard is because the serpent is regarded in that way. It's a subtle and crafty animal that survives by its stealth and by its wit. And so the devil takes an instrument that is like unto him in kind. The devil's primary weapon, I think, in balance is deception, subtlety. The Lord Jesus says this Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus here speaks about the devil and how he has been from the very beginning. And this is our first meeting with him, is it not? That he is a liar from the beginning. When he lies, he simply speaks that which is native to his character because he is a liar and he is the father of it in others. The purpose of his deception is to ruin the souls of men. And ultimately, if he can, to persuade them to worship him. He has received the worship of men in many forms and through many contrivances, sometimes and in some places very directly and what we would call um, paganism, sometimes through the gross idolatry of heathenism and its false gods. Indeed, there was a great worshipping of uh, the dragon and has ever been so in uh, the Roman Catholic papacy. So the devil seeks to deceive man so that he might receive their allegiance and their worship. But unlike the great and good God of heaven, not for their profit, but ultimately for their destruction. He is a hard taskmaster. He will receive your worship, all of your days, and ultimately destroy and ruin your soul. Those he cannot deceive, because ultimately the great God of truth will keep his children from his deceptions. Those he cannot deceive, he will try to terrify by violence. And this is his second great weapon. The devil is ever stirring up sinful men unto violence so that they might destroy one another. And again, this is because of this great malice. But in particular, he takes great delight in stirring up the animosity of the world against the church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and ye shall be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. We know that it was not the devil who physically took these Christian people and threw them into prison to try them and put them to death. But rather the devil is referenced here because it is the devil at work through his instruments and by stirring up the hostility of the world. It's that devil that uh, actualizes this hostility and violence against the people of the living God. I reference this text because we had it not so... Uh, very long ago but you can think of a great many more you might think of the first two chapters of Job and the way that the devil used uh, foreign peoples uh, marauders and bandits to vex and harm uh, Job's holdings you think of the apostolic history in the book of Acts and how the devil stirred up the hostility of both Jew and Gentile to endeavor to hinder the work of the church and to destroy um, uh, the bodies of men when he was not able to destroy their souls. So if uh, the people of God will not desert God, he will do what he can to hurt them and grieve them and even force them to defect by violence. one final word since we've we've had it recently in this in this regard in the history of the world the roman church has been that great instance of this kind of satanic working first by deception as we had occasion to see the seduction of the souls of men unto their own destruction so that the devil himself might have worship through his emissaries and agents But those that he could not deceive, he endeavored to destroy and to terrify by force and by violence. And so it was for more than a thousand years until the Protestant Reformation. And although the Roman Church has lost a lot of its ability to do this sort of physical violence, yet nothing has changed in principle. In other words, she has not repented or recanted of any of these persecuting principles and the spiritual deception is as potent as ever it has been. I hope that in the doing of all of this, you have a uh, somewhat of a better grasp on uh, what Jonathan Edwards meant when he said that if God should lift his restraining hand, The devil would have us so deceived that we would destroy ourselves before the morning. Uh, This is a sober appreciation of the abilities of our adversary and the liabilities of our own fallen nature. He would do this violence against us spiritually, and we are happy to have it so in our fallen condition. However, we can say that the satanic kingdom does indeed suffer some very serious and very definite limitations, some of which we have already observed. But I do want to put a finer point on this. As we mentioned before, Satan's malice is limited in its action by the sovereign God. You might remember our discussions from the first two chapters of Job. how how God does give him leave to a certain extent to do certain things and he is of such power and efficacy that he's able to do the things that he's given permission to do. But God puts definite limits upon him that he cannot transcend. And also, all angelic powers, including demons, have been subordinated to the mediator Jesus Christ we see this in uh, during the time of Christ's uh, uh, work on this earth His authority and power to cast out devils when he speaks the word they must go and so you see his power and his authority over them. In our um, scripture from Colossians 2.15, Christ is portrayed as having a complete victory over them. And so they have been made subject to his power. So the devils do work and they will do certain things, but they are overruled by Jesus Christ to two great ends. Whatever they do will ultimately be glorifying to God and to his Christ. And ultimately although painful, ultimately good for the church. So Christ is stronger than the strong man who subdues his malice and makes it subservient to his own good purposes and kind intention toward his church. In saying this, I I need to make a very careful distinction if we're going to make sense of two things that the Bible teaches The devil does indeed have a kingdom, and it's described as a kingdom in the scriptures. And yet this is not meant to imply that the devil has a right or a claim to anything. And I bring this up because it has not been uncommon, especially in dispensationalism of our own day, but for a long time in theology, to think of the devil because of the fall of man as having some sort of a right or claim to this world or to this earth. He does not. If you remember our doctrine before, we said that Jesus Christ, the mediator, is king of all things. The right is his. All things belong to Him, whether they be men or angels, puppies or flowers, molecules, all of it belongs to Him. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch of this universe that Jesus Christ does not say, It is mine. It is mine. And we should never lose sight of that. The devil is a mere rebel pretender. To the throne who has in actuality been subjugated and defeated already. So it is a rebellion that has already been defeated. But as we would say, a rebel has no proper right or claim. He might set himself up as a king and he might have people swear allegiance to him, but he is no proper king. The right does not belong to him. The right belongs to Christ. And what a sad thing when men slavishly, in servitude to their own sinfulness, join the rebellion, and unless they be rescued by divine grace, they will be partakers in the devil's judgments. Remember the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, and they will be cast into that fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels, those who join him in the rebellion will be like partakers in His judgments and in His plagues. This limitation is, is rich in application. I hope it is comforting to all of us. I hope in particular it will be comforting to our children in the night. I have two things to tell you. And these are very important things. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, If you have not been united to him by faith, you have every reason in the world to be very afraid of these terrible beings. Where uh, Christ is not present, you will frequently find them present and even sometimes present in great and profound power and remember their object is to act maliciously to hurt and to harm, to terrify and vex. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, but you've come to embrace this much truth, you have reason to be very afraid indeed. But for those of you, even little children, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear from the devil or from demons. Remember the scriptures, we've already uh, read them. The devil is already a defeated foe. The the language of Colossians 2 evokes the imagery of a victorious king. Frequently what kings would do is they go out to some foreign land to fight the enemies of the kingdom. And having been victorious, they would come back and they would lead uh, their defeated foes in chains. And this is the very image of Colossians chapter 2. Christ, having returned from his great victory, has led them in chains and made an open display of their powerlessness. Christ has been victorious over them, and not just for himself, but for the well-being of all his children, even his little children that trust in him. The devil does indeed hate you, And he wants to harm you, but his malice is limited. He cannot touch you at all, apart from the good pleasure of Christ. And he will only permit it insofar as it is for your spiritual good and well-being. It is not an uncommon thing concerning the children of God for the devil to complain in this way. You have set a hedge about him and I cannot touch him at all. But even when uh, God gave him leave to touch Job, ultimately, it was only for Job's well-being. And by the end of the book, we see that it greatly improved his spiritual well-being indeed. So there is nothing for us to be afraid of. Remember the words of David in the Psalms. Whatsoever time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And those that have trusted in him have never been disappointed. Ultimately, he will keep you safe. He will keep your soul safe. And ultimately, the, bo- the uh, devil can't even do anything to harm your body. Remember the work that we, that we did. When the Christian dies, it is not a judgment, but a peaceful lying in a bed. And even that death will be swallowed up in Victory at the resurrection of the dead. Ultimately, the devil can do you no harm. He will be active, but Christ will overrule all of that activity for your spiritual profit. Fear not, little ones. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Before we leave off, I wanted to consider some uh, special cases of demonic activity first of all one of the questions that I've frequently been asked in the ministry when such things come up people ask uh, with respect to spiritism and witchcraft are these things real the question basically is, are these really manifestations of spiritual and demonic power? Or is it just um, uh, the Puritans called it juggling? We, we mean something we mean the throwing of balls now, but they mean like sleight of hand, like a magician. Is it just clever tricks by men to uh, impose upon the naivete of other men their credulity? In answer to this, some some years ago, as a matter of fact, I was at um, an engagement party for me and my wife. We were soon to be married. And a longtime friend of mine who um, knew me long before my conversion, but knew that I was a theology student at the time, he came to the celebration. And he had been watching a, a medium by the name of John Edwards on television, Uh, John Edwards is a a medium. He says that he communicates with the souls of dead people and he would talk to people in the audience and presumably their loved ones would speak through him uh, to their yet living loved ones. And so he asked me, uh, being a student of theology, he said, do you think that John Edwards is the real deal or do you think it's a hoax? Is it... um, Is it real witchcraft and communicating with spirits in some way? Or is it um, just tricks? You know, is he like a magician who's performing tricks? And the answer that came to me at the time uh, was simple and really all I wish to communicate to you. Real, not real, it's forbidden whether it is uh, by lying arts to impose upon the credulity of men, that's forbidden in one regard. And if he is uh, playing with the spiritual uh, realm in, uh, through methods forbidden, that also forbidden, forbidden. Put it down, walk away from it, leave it alone. The scriptures do teach that sometimes this is a real thing. The scriptures do teach that there are people who are in league with the devil and that devil through them does at times superhuman things. This is a reality. It was a reality in uh, biblical times and even to the present day. Missionaries send back reports, even good sound reformed missionaries that these things still happen in uh, the world. As far as biblical proofs, just some examples. I, I won't go at length on this, but consider the witch at Endor. Phalaam, uh in the book of, of Numbers. Pharaoh's magicians and the things that they are able to do, which seems to go far beyond parlor tricks, if you can consider, consider the narrative. Consider the prohibitions in scripture, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live as if witchcraft was a real thing and more than simply playing, uh, uh, doing sleight of hand or parlor tricks, which certainly wouldn't carry with it a, a death sentence. We could add to this. This is not just the scripture, but this is one of those things. Uh, you have to consider the whole history of the world and the entire experience of mankind. We are strongly prejudiced by what I would call enlightenment empiricism. So we think anybody that uh, that uh, believed in these sorts of things is some sort of backwards primitive or something like that, eaten up with superstition. The universal testimony of mankind in all ages has been that these things are real, even from uh, people who have no great inclination to these sorts of things. Consider the Salem witch trials, not not the popular presentation. Consider Cotton Mathers uh, journals and the body of evidence he collected concerning the things that were happening there. Um, This wasn't uh, a bunch of um, uh, hysterical backwoods primitives. These were the most educated men of the age collecting objective evidence that would be uh, incredibly difficult to falsify. Things like having uh, one woman and another woman in different rooms, in different locations, asking the witch in one room a question and having those that were complaining about her oppression in a different place altogether answer the questions. This kind of evidence. These weren't uh, hysterical, uh, confused people. These were people compiling objective evidence concerning phenomenon that they were witnessing. And this was no new thing. These were also people more highly skilled in history than uh, our current crop of intellectuals, and they knew this to be the common experience of uh, mankind. Having said this, having said that sometimes these things are real, sometimes these things are frauds as well. And you can find evidence of this throughout history also. So by way of application, my... My counsel to you is this, that the immediate concern in a particular case is not, is it real or unreal? The immediate concern is, it's forbidden. And we have enough light in any particular case to know that. And that we should leave these things alone and not meddle with them. I do not want you to feel like you have the burden to explain all these things. Shakespeare once wrote, there are more things in heaven and on earth than are contained in your philosophy. There are many strange things in the world, natural, that we cannot explain. Some things that boggle the mind and almost defy the imagination. When you add that invisible realm, the laws of which we hardly understand, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we run into many things that we have trouble uh, understanding. Indeed, we have a hard time uh, discerning a magician's parlor tricks when we know that they're parlor tricks. So in a particular case, you shouldn't necessarily feel like you have the burden to explain what's going on. But you know enough to know this. Real, unreal, forbidden. We ought not to meddle with these things. And a second application, and I'll keep coming back to this. Beware of fascination with these works of darkness. There is something about us that we are deeply interested in these in these sorts of things. But if you have understood what I've told you about the devil and his ability to deceive and vex and hurt, you would be very wise to stay as far away as you can from this enemy. God might open a door where he might have some level of uh, ability to hurt you. But would you not be a foolish man to open that door yourself? You, up, you apply the means and you stay clear of these kinds of things. And beware of any sort of growing fascination in these uh, dark arts. One way or another, the demons are involved in these things and much delight in that, and a Christian has no place meddling in such a thing. Second, the question comes up with respect to demon possession is it real? Is it fraud? Is it uh, psychological and mental illness? Once again, you could probably find instances of all three of these things. Sometimes it's the real deal. Sometimes it's a hoax or a fraud. And sometimes it has to do with the distempers of uh, the mind. But the scriptures do teach us that sometimes these things are real. My uh, former pastor in New Jersey put it this way. All unregenerate men are under the sway of the devil. Ephesians chapter 2 all unregenerate men are under the sway of the devil it's just a question of the degree of manifestation of that influence so it's not an either or question it's a question of degree of manifestation but all are under his sway they are when you consider that line of enmity and demarcation they are on the devil's side and he captivates their minds, and their wills. Sometimes the degree of manifestation is such that the human personality seems to be completely set aside and the devils themselves control the body in ways that um, uh, defy the imagination. And missionaries, even to the present day, continue to testify to the reality of such things. Again, you think of Manton's uh, words where the gospel has had great success. There's less of this. But in those places where the gospel has not yet reached and the devil has been worshipped very directly, uh, these things are quite common still. Now, again, in a particular case, is it real? Is it fraud? Is it psychological? I do not want you to feel the responsibility to explain. The remedy in all of these cases is the same. The word of God, read the gospel, delivered and prayer. These are the principal remedies in waging this spiritual warfare. So whether the man is an absolute fraud and huckster, or whether it be the real deal, the deliverance for that man's bound soul. And it's only a matter of degree. It's the delivery of the gospel, that message of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And as the Lord Jesus Christ said, such come out by fasting and prayer. We pray and fast for the deliverance of such. The old miraculous gift of the casting out of devils is not to be expected. Its purpose has passed. And indeed, uh, to tell you the truth, as I have um, Uh, from time to time bumped into the Roman Catholic rites of exorcism, and as they have been uh, copied by misguided Protestants, frequently those rites of exorcism seem more like demonism, uh, an appeal to the devil for the casting out of the devil or some strange thing. We have to do with God in such matters, not with the devil, but rather with the God who controls him and rules over him. So we do our job. We deliver the gospel. We pray. We fast. And um, the only other thing that could be added to that, if there is uh, a suspected physical component, then there might be some necessity to treat the, um, the physical nature of the physical man in conjunction with the word. To make sure that the man is, um, is healthy and it's not the distempers of a, of a bad body chemistry or, uh, or some such thing. One final thing. As I was meditating upon this, this seemed to uh, have a, a particular and ancient deception entailed in it. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon, reports of ghosts and hauntings seem to be on the increase. And in this, there is a great deception. The Bible teaches that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You die and then you are judged. And that soul then separated from the body goes to be with the Lord, if believing... Or to hell, if unbelieving, to await the resurrection of the dead. The devil would love to convince us that there is some other option. And this is a great lie. If you think about his lie to our first parents, this was a part of it. If we obey, we live. If we disobey, we die. The great business of eternal life and eternal death. Eve understood it right. And that first lie was, thou shalt not surely die. It's even stated in the Hebrew quite ambiguously. It's not surely thou shalt not die, but thou shalt not surely die. There might be some other possible outcome in this. And if the devil can persuade us that either heaven and hell are not the real results or that there are some other possible options, say purgatory or a disembodied existence here continuing on the earth, he will have done much to um, destroy the true religion in the minds of men. When there are... Uh, apparitions, visions, appearances, and if they be real, this is demonic activity impersonating human souls to blunt the idea of a final judgment. And even when the devil cannot deceive us in this regard, in his malice, he delights to terrify and vex us. So if he cannot harm us as Christians, he would still like as far as he is able to terrify us and frighten us in this regard. And so we come again to particular cases. In the report of a particular haunting, or maybe even in your own experience, was this demonic activity or just my overwrought imagination? You don't have to explain it. And you don't have to come to terms with it. We can say this for sure. Beware, once again, of being overly fascinated by such things. Remember when there are such experiences. Remember the doctrine concerning the final judgment. And that final judgment is sure, apart from whatever your experience or the experience of others might be. And do not be deceived. That is the great truth that is at stake in such things. And then ultimately, whether it's a demonic activity or my overwrought brain, we have recourse to our God, our great and gracious God by prayer to relieve our fears and to bring us back into a quiet and content frame of mind. Also, we need to add just one other thing which is given throughout the scripture The devil is indeed a mighty foe. But we are told in the scriptures that if we resist him by the word of God and prayer, he will flee from us. And so this is our primary duty to resist him, claiming the promise that when we resist, ultimately, he will give way and he will flee. Greater is he that is in us, that mighty spirit of God and he that is in the world. Let us pray together.